So the leading cause of death in this country for women, number one, dementia. Yeah. Second leading cause of death is heart disease. Third leading cause of death is stroke, which is a connection actually between the heart vessels and the brain and a blockage of blood supply to the brain. So, you know, brain and heart are your top three leading cause of death in this country, and all three of them have preventable components. Silver Adventures is a content and technology company dedicated to improving the lives of older adults through immersive virtual reality experiences. And this podcast is our opportunity to hear from industry experts, thought leaders, and passionate individuals to share with you their knowledge, expertise, and experiences. Welcome to the Age Care Enrichment Podcast. Hello, welcome to another episode of the podcast. Today is all about how aging affects women's bodies slightly differently to those of men and what the research shows we can all do to reduce the risks of age-related illnesses. I spoke to Professor Cassandra Zerke, who's the director of the Healthy Aging Project at the University of Melbourne, and she's been leading Australia's longest study of women's health, the Women's Healthy Aging Project. Now, out of 30 years of research, she's just written her new book, Secrets of Women's Healthy Aging, which you'll hear that we talk about in the conversation. This was a fun and interesting look at what women and men can do to keep their bodies, or machines as Cassandra calls them, running smoothly for up to 100 years. So I hope you enjoy this chat with Professor Cassandra Zerke. All right, Cassandra, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. It's wonderful to have you here. And are you calling in from Melbourne at the moment? I suspect you might be. Yes, I'm in Melbourne, absolutely. Lovely. And are you enjoying the uh, the random weather we're having at the moment? Seems like it's hot <laughs> and it's pouring all the time. I'm enjoying the relief from the last, you know, 40 degrees of 40 or whatever we've had. <laughs> Felt like 40 degrees with 40 days. It did. Got a bit sweaty there. Well, for listeners who don't know your work and, and what you do, maybe you can give us a bit of your background and how you ended up where you are now. Oh, gosh. Now, that's a longer story than we have time for. <laughs> the abridged version there. <laughs> Um, So, look, I'm the director of the Healthy Ageing Program that's run at the University of Melbourne, and we're located in the Centre for Medical Research, which is actually on site at the Royal Melbourne Hospital campus. And, you know, our program has evolved over the last few decades, um, as has all of ageing research, I suppose. And we started initially with one project, um, and it was called the Women's Healthy Ageing Project, and that started back in the 90s, and it's still going today. So that actually means that we are the longest running study of women's health in Australia. Wow, fantastic. So when you started in the 90s, what were you looking at? So look, initially in the 90s, they were specifically wanting to look at the menopausal transition. So everyone who entered the study actually had not gone through menopause. So they were all premenopausal women in their 40s. And they came into the study and then were observed. Initially, it was a five-year funded study through the National Health Medical Research Council. And the plan was to look at that menopausal transition. But of course, after five years, one of the first papers that was published was, it doesn't take five years, (laughs) Um, which we now, of course, know it can take a decade or longer, depending on who you are. And that was some of the seminal research that actually came out of the original work. And, you know, it's evolved over the time, always, of course, looking at health markers, but, you know, going through various phases as women went from 50 to 60 to 70 and now into their 80s. Wow. So are you still running the program with the same women? 
we are still running the program with the same incredible women. Regardless of any researchers, it's really them that have made this program because it's the 30 years of contribution that they've given which allows us to know the secrets of healthy ageing. Yeah, and before we dive into some of the secrets of healthy ageing, how are they finding the study? I mean, this is 30 years of them being poked and prodded and observed under different conditions and reporting. Are they enjoying the process themselves? Well, I think you'd have to ask them directly because I only hear from the lovely ladies who always send me little notes and, um, of course, they're the ones that enjoy it. (laughs) But what I would say is all of them really care about women's health. All Mm. of them really see a need to improve women's health and they're willing to make that contribution altruistically and they certainly have impacted not just Australian women but internationally we're one of the longest-running studies in the world that's looking at women's health that has those hormonal measures from that transitional time. Yeah, awesome. So after they've transitioned through menopause, I'm guessing that the focus of the study changed quite a bit, right? What what sort of things have you been looking at in that postmenopausal period? So obviously we're still looking at the hormonal factors, but we're really focusing a lot now on the chronic diseases of ageing. And of course, throughout the 40s, we were still looking at what we call risk factors like blood pressure and cholesterol and diet and activity and bone, all the bone measures that we've done. Also, mental health and cognitive health. We're one of the unique studies internationally where we actually did cognitive measures for women in their 50s where most research looking at um, brain health and cognition happens over 70 because that's when dementia starts to occur is over 70. It's very rare to have dementia under. Mm. Is it a case though that perhaps the, the symptoms become more visible after 70 but it might be a bit of an iceberg situation? Oh, Ash, I love your thinking. I love your thinking. (laughs) So that's actually the forefront of where we have made many of our publications is what we call cognitive decline. So obviously in our study, because we've got healthy people in it, hundreds of healthy Australian women, you know, we do have now people who are getting dementia in their 80s, but not so many people have dementia. We've been publishing around the things you can do to have optimal cognition as you get older. So not so much a focus on disease, but the recognition that there is decline in cognition over time. And that while some of this is attributed to aging, in fact, a lot of it is actually preventable lifestyle risk factors. Mm, and what sort of factors are preventable? Well, of course, the best place to direct you to is the Lancet Neurology publication, which was a global international syndicate of the risk factors for dementia. And they've published two papers now. And so they've listed their seven to 12 risk factors for dementia. But I think what's important is a couple of things. Number one, the World Health Organization actually put out that before our COVID epidemic, I might add, chronic diseases of aging are kind of the next epidemic that's about to hit Mm. our societies worldwide as um, we're aging. And we haven't been looking after our midlife health so much for our later life health because people just did not used to live over 70 and 80. Back at the turn of the century, people's mean age of death was 50. Mm. Now, women's mean age of menopause is 50. So, you know, if you're wondering why there's very little out there about postmenopausal women's health, it's because in the 1900s, people really didn't live past menopause. And so that's why there's so little knowledge and something we really have to look at. But the WHO says that 80% 
of the chronic diseases of ageing, which are the ones that are expected to increase by up to 300% in the next decade, 80% of these are preventable with lifestyle change. Wow. That is significant. Not a small number at all. No. And so, look, in the book, I actually run through each of the things you can do chapter by chapter to focus on those. Let me jump in here. This is your recent book, Secrets of Women's Healthy Aging. Maybe you can, before we get into the nitty gritty, tell us the story of the book. Has this come out of the Healthy Aging Program directly? Yes, look, it has. So our Healthy Aging Program has been running more than 30 years at the University of Melbourne. And so it's certainly from the studies we've done. So I already mentioned the Women's Healthy Aging Project. We also have a study called Age Happy, which includes men and women. It's an online study. And that allowed us to get, you know, thousands of participants rather than the several hundred you can see in person. And that new study, Age Happy, also has cognitive testing online. So, you know, our advances in telehealth and the capacity to do measures online has really, really improved our capacity also to do some very interesting research on people who otherwise might not be able to come in to universities or research centres and so are often not included in medical research. It's all of those studies, but to be honest... It's also all the conferences we've attended, the collaborations we've had internationally, all the knowledge that we've learned across this time. We decided, because it was the 30th year since we've been around, (laughs) that we would just consolidate it all in a book. And I know what you're going to say, Ash, that's a very short book for all the knowledge of the (laughs) But I must say I had a maximum word count of 50,000 words, so I did have to stick to that. That's great. I don't think anybody wants to read through tables of data and... uh look at too many charts. Let's let's cut to the nitty-gritty and, and get to some takeaways and some outcomes. Huh? What, what are some factors you said you're listing in the book there, step-by-step, step, what women can do to improve their health as they age? So, look, I know that everyone knows that they should eat healthy and move more and all of these things. So, we, we kind of know what's important to do. I think one of the things I really focus on is no matter which disease you look at, heart, brain, you know, One of the number one things you can do, if there's only one thing you can do and you don't want to hear the list of seven lifestyle things you should be changing, Mm. if there's just one thing that you could do, it would be to move more. Mm. What we found in our study was that physical activity was the number one predictor of later life health, later life improved cognition. It was the number one predictor. And, you know, I was so interested in this because I thought, oh, my goodness, it's way more important than the other things. I mean, the other things are important too. You know, you've got to have good blood pressure. You don't want high cholesterols. um, You've got to eat healthy. Those are important too. But the physical activity was just so much more important. And so I actually looked at some of the other major, huge, thousands of people, summary studies that have been done internationally, looking at population attributable risks um, for disease, and in particular, dementia. And if you look at the data in their supplementary tables, where they kind of look at all of the risks in comparison to one another, whilst they came up with, you know, seven, eight, 12 risk factors, the biggest, strongest risk factor in all of those was actually physical activity. Mm. So I think if you only want to do one thing and you can't, don't have time to do anything else, move every day. Yeah. If it's a choice between a salad and going for a walk, the walk wins out. It's, that's what I'm hearing. Walk wins out, walk wins out. <laughs> but, you know, and the other thing is, you know, this nutrition is so tough, isn't it? Nobody wants to talk about diets and I certainly don't want to talk about diets. I think what we should be talking more about is nutrition as what are you putting in your body? What fuel are you using? Mm are using some dodgy 
processed fuel that you know is going to damage your insides? Or are you using premium, optimum, the best quality foods, which is basically farm to table, something that is as minimally processed as possible is what's going to be best for your body. And, you know, you need to use your machine for 100 years. Yeah. So, you know, if you put dodgy fuel into it, you're going to get damaged. We all understand this with every piece of machinery we own. I think we have to focus on nutrition, not as a diet, but as using premium fuels to have optimised functioning. Yeah, that, that metaphor always strikes me very, uh, it's very poignant for me. I remember riding a, a very dodgy motorbike through a, quite a poor country and you buy petrol in little bottles on the side of the road and riding the motorbike and the engine would just cut out for a few seconds and then sputter <laughs> back to life because the, the oil and the petrol was just full of dirt and grit and all this nasty stuff. So absolutely fueling your body with good quality fuel sounds like a good plan. I like your analogy, Ash. It's just perfect because that's exactly what disease is. Hey, so I know that a lot of your research is focused on women's healthy aging, but with the Age Happy Project, you said as well, you're bringing in men. I'm wondering what are the sorts of differences in needs of women as they age as compared to those for men? So look, a lot of the principles of healthy aging are common between the two. So moving, using premium fuel, th these are all connection, the fact we're better together. These are all things, each of the chapters really is relevant to men and women. The reason we focused on women's health is because if you look at research that's been done since the first day research was invented, it's predominantly been in men. Mm-hmm. And particularly medical research has been highly focused on men and particularly chronic diseases of ageing. So if you think women's health, often you'll be expecting me to be talking about, about breasts, endometriosis, you know, mm. breast, uterus, things covered by bikini, so-called bikini health. That's had a lot of research um, on women. However, things like diabetes, heart disease, dementia, these aren't things that have been specifically researched in women and because women were excluded from a lot of the trials of medications because, of course, people forget that we, we take for granted now our capacity to um, control fertility. But, you know, there were some very scary things that happened with people taking medications that crossed the um, placenta and affected unborn babies. And so women were reasonably, you know, this wasn't some sort of equity issue, you know, women were reasonably excluded from medical studies because of that. And also because it was felt that their hormones, which of course fluctuate throughout your 28-day cycle, could influence outcomes. And that's not so scientific a reason. Um, <laughs> in fact, well, there's this brilliant, brilliant researcher who recently, because these six differences have kind of really come to the recently and got more airtime. And this brilliant researcher actually did a study where she looked at female rats, which is so even rats, even our, our mice rat studies that are done before a medication would even enter human trials, 100% male animals. And of course, it was said, well, of course, the women with the hormones, it's going to change the milieu of the environment and make the experiment uncontrolled. In fact, this researcher looked at women rats and, and, and male rats, and what she found was that the aggression in males was causing such hormonal changes that, in fact, it was more the research in males was more unreliable in the male rats than it was in the female rats. So it's interesting the assumptions that get made that can be debunked if someone actually looks. And, of course, you might think I'm talking about the deep dive 
dark old ages when female animals were not included in medications given we really rely a lot in ageing and that extended lifespan relies a lot on medications. But in fact, it was only 2016 the National Institute of Health finally mandated and they mandated it because they'd called for it and it, they checked and no one was doing it. 2016, they mandated that male and female animals had to be included in the design of drugs. Wow. So we're very slowly changing things then. Very slowly. And, you know, you might say, well, hang on, are there any differences in drugs? I've got a whole chapter in the book where I list all the drugs <laughs> that, that have really significant differences, male versus female, because we have a different um, fat profile. We have different distribution um, of drugs in the body system. We have different hormones, of course. So there's so many reasons and proof that actually the metabolism of drugs can be quite different in men and women in terms of how much you absorb how much you metabolize and how much you excrete. So in, in all ways, it really does affect things. Sounds like with your book, The Secrets of Women's Healthy Aging, you're highlighting how these things have affected women and, and uh, what the takeaway can be. Well, there's certainly a lot more work that needs to be done. And I, I have a, there's 10 chapters, but there's actually an epilogue, but it's all about sex and not the fun kind of sex, you know, male versus female. Mm -hmm. And that actually covers all of those issues and shows you, kind of gives us a snapshot of where we are now and where we've got to get to. Hey, did you know we launched a new show this season? Hello, I'm here with Daniela Greenwood. And I'm here with Mori Voicey Balan. That's right, Daniela and Maury are back and they're joining us every Friday for their new show, Who Cares?, where they'll be taking a quizzical look at some of Age Care's challenges and exploring what they mean for all of us working in the industry. I'm really stumped by how what the resolution is here because I think there's a lot to dig into. You would have been better working at McDonald's, Murray, because I they've got a good set. I could have been somebody, <laughs> Daniela. I could have been somebody. You are a somebody, Murray. You, and the more I learn about you, you're an amazing oh, somebody. Oh, thank you. I think the same. It's a double dose of podcast fun each week and you can find it right here in the Ace Feed every Friday. You're going to be the new <laughs> Minister of Ageing if it's the last thing I do. Well, for our listeners who might be caring for older women or, or older men, do you have any sort of takeaway messages that they can be thinking about in, in terms of how they can help them improve their longevity and, and their health as they age? Yeah, sure. So, uh, look, the first is movement. I think sometimes, especially when people have arthritis or very good reasons for why mobility is not easy for them, people can sometimes tend to not want to bother them to go for a walk or not want to suggest that they, mm. whereas actually moving really helps. It helps all of those diseases, even arthritis, which is like the number one reason why people don't want to get moving. And yet, interestingly, more gentle, slow movement can actually improve even the pain symptoms in arthritis. Wow. Okay. And I heard something about incidental movement is quite valuable as well, right? Yeah, absolutely. I'm a big fan of incidental movement because uh, I'm not a gym goer. But look, we, we, we did actually look in our study. A lot of the research looks at these kind of, I mean, look, every week there's another thing, isn't there? 30 minutes, three times a week. Then I saw a 60 seconds of exercise three times a day. You know, <laughs> yeah. I mean, you're always looking for the shorter one, aren't you? Yeah. Um, so when we did our study, we really did think the intense exercises were going to do better. Mm. And this is because when you look at exercise that makes you breathe hard, if you like, that what we call aerobic exercise, 
compared to other kind of resistance exercise or different exercises that don't make you breathe so hard. But when we looked in our study across 30 years, we found something that wasn't that. So our hypothesis that the aerobic exercises, the intense exercises would do better was rejected. They did not do better. The people who did the best of everyone were the people who did activity every single day. Every day they did 40 minutes to an hour of activity. Could have been a walk around the block. Mm-hmm. Could have been going to the gym, but they did it every single day, 40 minutes to an hour, and they did better, even if it was just a walk around the park. So, you know, I think with chronic diseases of aging, and now we're looking after our machines to 100, we have to think about something we're happy to do every day for 100 years. Yeah. Oh, I'm, I'm trying to think about that. <laughs> yeah, well, no point being intense for five years or three days. You know, chronic diseases, they take decades to develop. So you've got to do these things for decades to keep them at bay. So for goodness yeah. sake, choose something you love and do it. <laughs> yeah, even dance. If you can find time to <laughs> dance every day for 100 years, that's a good one, right? One of the things that we really found interesting in our study when we went into this activity, because as I said, when a researcher rejects their hypothesis, they're never very happy. So they have mm-hmm. to find out why is this the case? And interestingly, there were women who said they didn't exercise, but they were recording. So we do an international physical activity questionnaire and you get a score based on your um, activities. And of course, when you look at it, why did they score high when they're telling us they didn't do activity? And it's because they were vacuuming. They mm. were, you know, so all these kind of household chores that the women were doing, that was real activity. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, hanging up the washing. Well, I talked to my grandma about, you know, her sort of daily routine when she goes out and does the gardening. She says, you know, she can do a certain number of buckets of weeds and then she needs to take a break because it tires her out. It's like, what's, yeah, I don't want to do much more than what you're doing there. You crouched over the dirt and pulling stuff out. That's legitimate exercise. It absolutely is. And I think this is, you know, like diet, sometimes exercise gets banded into some sort of prescribed activity. And sometimes, you know, we're finding, I mean, look at sports people. If you do repetitive training on certain joints in the same way, people can get joint problems when they're much older. Mm. some of these great activities that people think are not important are actually fantastic for your health yeah well something that i've been thinking about in my own sort of movement is pick something that you love as you said and whether that's going for a walk or a bike ride or in someone else's case hanging out the washing and doing the vacuuming maybe those sorts of approaches of just for the moment is a good way to have some consistency I think also this concept that, I mean, we've been the healthy aging program for some time, but the concept of healthy aging is not actually something you would see around. So when we first started, there was nothing called healthy aging. Like if you Googled it, which I did, of course, before (laughs) before we became the healthy aging program, um, there was just nothing on healthy aging because a lot of our medicine is disease focused. So when you have a disease focus, say pick heart disease, you're looking at exercise that brings down those cholesterol levels, exercise that remodels those blood vessels as fast as possible. So I think that's why we've had this kind of immediate focus. And also remember clinical trials only run for three to five years. It's highly rare even in an epidemiological study to be going for more than 10 years, let alone 30. 
Mm. But the chronic diseases of ageing, they're sneaky diseases. There's a reason they're about to hit the world by storm. We know very little about them because research doesn't go for decades. It goes for the three- to five-year funding cycles. Clinical trials go for 12 months. Maybe they'll have like a two-year or five-year follow-up sometimes on a few measures with huge dropout in their population. So really understanding these chronic diseases that take decades to occur, you need to watch people over decades. Well, I never thought of that, that the way that the funding is set up for research, it actually doesn't allow for these sorts of programs to come along very often. No, absolutely not. And look, some countries are better than others. So, you know, the Nordic countries, they are so good at epidemiological research. And there's some really good studies in the USA, but not many, not as many as the Nordic countries. But um, they've certainly funded like the Framingham study. Mm-hmm. A lot of the knowledge we have on heart disease actually came from that Framingham Heart Study, which has been properly funded now, I think, 50 years. And luckily now they also included women. So initially it was a male-only study. Well, glad we're getting some more equity there. It sounds like there is a bit of a, a shift going on. Like we've spoken to some people on the show, Dr. Andrea Meyer, we spoke to who's up at the University of Singapore, I believe, at the moment. She's talking about geroscience and looking at the way to prevent and treat, quote-unquote, ageing. Is this something that you've looked at before? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, Andrea Meyer was at University of Melbourne until 12 months ago. So, (laughs) (laughs) So, no, we're we're very good collaborators. She's fantastic. But I think one of the things about healthy ageing is it's not so much treating a disease, like uh, seeing ageing as some disease that we have to treat. A big component of healthy ageing is not getting disease. So as I said, back to WHO, World Health Organization, 80% of the chronic diseases of aging are preventable. (laughs) Everybody knows prevention is better than cure. Once you have a disease, it is tough. It's really tough. So really preventing disease is what's important and not seeing aging and ill health as interconnected. Mm. And this is, again, something I think because people were dying at 50. I said mean age 50, age of death in the 1900s. So, you know, people really didn't expect because people were dying, the kind of idea of being old was associated with death and ageing mm-hmm. and, and very much uh, connected to illness. Now that we understand heart disease can be preventable, now that we understand that dementia can be preventable, these are the disease, so leading causes of death in this country for women. Number one, dementia. Yeah. And, you know, there's a very famous paper that was written in Lancet Neurology that said 50% of all dementia cases are preventable. And then they revised that and said, oh, maybe 30% because they wanted to be a little more conservative. (laughs) But, you know, regardless, there's a huge proportion of dementia that's preventable and it's the number one leading cause of death of women in this country today. Second leading cause of death is heart disease, also preventable. Third leading cause of um, death is stroke, which is a connection actually between the heart vessels and the brain and a blockage of blood supply to the brain. So, you know, brain and heart are your top three leading causes of death in this country, and all three of them have preventable components. Mm. Well, it sounds like maybe one approach that we can lift from what's common today is you think about sunscreen. You know, everybody knows you go out in the sun, just put a little bit on. I know some people do more than others. I I definitely need it with my pasty skin, but maybe we're looking for the the sunscreen of dementia or heart disease or stroke. Well, you know, everyone wants a tablet, don't they, to be young again. I love that. Um, (laughs) But I think, you know, we can't get away from the fact our bodies are machines and we're using them 100 years. And there's not going to be some special magic oil. Do you remember that great ad? What was that? Oils and oils. And, you know, you put this oil in the car, it would all come good. Um, (laughs) I don't know there's going to be some secret elixir 
that's going to fix the 30 years of damage you might have done to your body. <laughs> Come on, so, <laughs> please. I just want the easy way out here. Oh, look, I'm sure we'll get there. And, you know, nanobot technology can do wonders, I'm sure, in the future. But I think ultimately you can do that and go through those procedures whenever they become available and hope they become available before those diseases take you and cause you lack of function and poor quality of life. Or you can just not have them happen. Try and keep your arteries clear. Don't overeat move every day, keep connected to your community because that's so important for mood. And also it changes our hormones and our sleep being connected to other people. So that kind of reconnects back into all of those chronic diseases that can get worse. We were speaking before about how there were some similarities with women and men and how they age, but I imagine there are some differences and particularly in biological elements, right? Look, absolutely. And probably the number one of those would be hormones. So everyone knows XX versus XY. The estrogen is a hormone that is much higher in women and it protects them because they have high estrogen levels. They're protected from heart disease. They're protected from inflammation. And that when menopause occurs, these estrogen levels drops. They become similar to uh, male levels of estrogen and they go quite low down to only be detectable with sensitive assays postmenopause and that at this time it's observed that postmenopausal women have the same levels of heart disease as men so whether protected before they suddenly get the same rates afterwards yeah what do you think the biological reason is there that there's a bit of a protection with the estrogen so look we know that estrogen is good for cells we know that it keeps cells um hydrated it keeps cells functioning optimally it does all these great protective things because i guess it's trying to protect the vessel that's growing the baby mm-hmm. <laughs> so you know it's 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 protecting two lives to some extent evolutionarily but there was a study done um you know these women were within five years of their final menstrual period taking um, hormone replacement therapy and in that study they published in the new england journal of medicine that after five to eight years of therapy the massive blood vessel in your neck that feeds the brain and is a measure of kind of those clogged arteries heart health brain health you know the arteries were wider with more blood flow much better in the women who were taking hormone therapy compared to the women who were not wow But, you know, that's five to eight years. Remember, these diseases won't happen for 10 to 30. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, so interesting. It sounds like our bodies are very finely tuned machines that we're still uncovering lots about, but we can definitely help by moving, 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 moving. Don't stop moving. Where can people find out more about your book, Cassandra? Well, look, obviously on the Melbourne University publishing side, but, I mean, it's everywhere. It's on Amazon. You can't (laughs) hide. You'll see it everywhere. Yeah, it's everywhere. It's everywhere. Well, make sure you check out Secrets of Women's Healthy Aging. Cassandra, thank you so much for your time today. Oh, my pleasure, Ash. Well, we hope you enjoyed this conversation. Don't forget that each Friday, we've got a fresh episode of our new show, Who Cares?, in which Daniela and Maury take another look at the ideas we've been discussing in today's episode and how they might affect all of us working in the aged care industry. It's fun, thought-provoking, and just a little bit silly. And the good news is it's all right here in the podcast feed. So you don't have to click anywhere else. But if you want to make sure you don't miss out, hit the subscribe button and you'll find out exactly when that episode is available. Anyway, we'll see you next week.